0: The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next.
1: Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics and opinions as well as interviews with native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today we'll be talking to Bill Thompson, who's the Vice Chief of the Penobscot Nation. He's also a writer, and uh, we'll be talking to him about his work, uh, his writing, during the next hour. Uh, the other hat that uh, Bill wears is that he's the uh, Air Quality uh, Technician and Data Analyst uh, and Program Manager at the Penobscot Nation. and. In the future, we'll be doing one whole show on that piece. But right now, we'll talk, about, we'll talk to Bill and uh, talk about his writing. Welcome to the show, Bill.
0: Thanks, Donna. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me on your show.
1: Um, I heard about your writing uh, a while ago. I think my co-host, Maria, mentioned uh, your, uh, your reading and some of the materials. And ever since then, I've been trying to get you on the show. So finally, got you here.
0: Gotcha. A, <laughs> it's nice <laughs> to be gotten. Yeah, I, uh, I I usually take Tuesdays to go up into Carabasa Valley for uh, air quality sample collection, and that's when your show is. And so uh, eventually we, we came together here, and we've had some good discussions, and it does necessitate a further show in the future. That would oh, be great if we talk about absolutely. air quality and science and all that wonderful stuff to guarantee to keep your listeners awake.
1: Absolutely. Um, so tell me about uh, your, your writing in... Um, how you you first uh, found out that, uh, or or you, or you first wanted to write?
0: Mm, that happened a long time ago. Uh, li- growing up uh, on the coast in Sabayak, which is uh, Pleasant Point, out in what is currently known as Maine, um, we grew up without uh, uh, electricity, television. You know, there was a battery-operated radio, uh, so we had oil lamps, and we would spend our time telling each other stories and writing. And uh, drawing pictures and stuff like that. So we were very much involved with each other. Uh, My sisters and I, uh, one of them is Pam Cunningham. She's a a master craftsman weaver. Let's see. Uh, Kimberly Bryant. she's also a master craft weaver. And my sister Susan Thompson, who's working on it. There's a lot of creativity in that family.
1: Exactly. And, And one of the most creative people of your family is your mother. Sipsis
0: sipsis, yeah, God bless her, yeah she's a very intelligent woman, It yeah. was something else to be raised by her too I'll tell you yeah,
1: yeah, i bet um so
0: <clears throat> give us
1: a, tell us what you're gonna what you're gonna do for your, for your first story a little bit little bit of background on that and uh,
0: the first story I have is naughty boy, but it's not what you think. It's K-N-O-T-T-Y, like a like a knot with rope. And uh, this has to do with uh, growing up on a reservation, and you hear a lot of stories. Uh, the stories in the oral tradition for children back then, a lot of them were uh, not so much from morals as they were uh, common sense safety rules, guides. But then there were some that were told just because it's fun to scare kids. And And it's fun to
1: be scared sometimes, too. Yeah, the right way.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's see. Oh, this one is uh, Naughty Boy. Dusk. The old trailer rusted beneath the hundred-foot pine. It squatted on two flat tires in the middle of a small clearing and leaned sleepily on the cement block under its tow hitch elbow. The upper half of the huge pine tree creaked in the strong breeze. The trailer's broken-out windows stared like hollow eye sockets at the boy who made his way closer. Robbie Newell wore a soft-looking pair of faded jeans, an oversized T-shirt, and a sweatshirt tied around his waist in case it got cold later. He pushed branches aside, stepping over mounds of rich, black earth from where pines had fallen and roots erupted. He jogged over the orange carpet of dead pine needles to the edge of the clearing. He stopped, looking over at the trailer's open doorway, which seemed to be yawning. An old Native American used to live in the trailer. The boy stood where he'd stopped, lost in his second thoughts, catching his breath. The wind began to die in the treetops. The ocean-like roar above faded into the distance as the forest grew sullen, dark, and thick. Mm maybe tomorrow he began to say and jumped at the way his voice cut through the silence leon pennymore cleared out this area for his home 70 years ago the trailer a gift to him 20 years ago had been empty for about 12 now robbie had never met him he was born three years after pennymore had passed away the tribal elder was found sitting at his table in the trailer There was a pot of coffee on the tiny pot belly stove, and the fire had gone out. There were three cups of coffee on the table. It was as though he had died while having company. Robbie let the branch slip out of his hand. He slipped his knapsack off from his back and dug around in it for a flashlight, never taking his eyes from the trailer. When he felt it, he pulled it out and flicked it on. The pale spot of light... It threw, only made him feel small and weak. It wasn't dark enough yet to see it well. He flicked it back off, putting it away. As he stood up, he felt a tingling at the back of his neck, as if someone was staring at him. His mouth went dry, and he looked around with big eyes. The trees moved slowly, as if in a silent dance, but he saw no one. Then the movement of a large, dark form caught his eye from way up high. It rose up from its limb and leapt into the air. Outspread arms and clawed feet fell towards him as he froze. He was about to faint. The beast swooped over his head, past him, behind him. He could feel the breath of its powerful wings. It snatched up a plump autumn hair with its talons and melted into the woods. Robbie sank to his knees, shaky and out of breath. Relief flooded his veins, dissolving the adrenaline in his pounding heart. He began to snicker and jitter, uh, he began to snicker and titter, jittery with the willies. The leaves in the nearby oak trees whispered dryly. Robbie knew about Pennymore from rumors, legends, and stories like the ones his own mother would tell him. His mother had been one of the kids who would visit the elder regularly. Pennymore would brew a pot of coffee and serve it to the kids as he told them stories of the old days. They would sit there politely, sipping their coffee, feeling big. Pennymore knew how to spin a yarn. He could mesmerize with that voice of his. It seemed to speak to you, Robbie's mom would tell him, from out of the ages. She said his voice sounded like a granite boulder rumbling down a hill. Robbie had heard rumors, too, from other people. Rumors about how Pennymore could eat glowing embers from a fire. His eyes would be lost in flames as if his head was on fire inside. He put spells on the baskets he wove and on the drums he would stretch and on the clubs that he carved. These spells would cause anyone who used your basket or drum without asking you first to get the spooks. That meant that when you were alone at night, you would feel like a ghost was standing behind you or beside you, tickling the hairs on your neck. Things would start moving by themselves, and it would turn out to be a long night for you. Legends abounded, too, like the one about Pennymore weaving little baskets and carving little walking sticks. The legends told of the Medulin; They were little people. They were real, and Leon Pennymore made gifts for them. Robbie liked the legends the best. He believed in them. Robbie stood up again, brushing the moist earth and pine needles from his jeans. He walked slowly to the trailer. Even though he felt a little more confident after having survived the kamikaze attack of the huge nightbird, he was still a little wary of the trailer. When he got to the doorway, he peered in. He had been right, as he suspected, that there was nothing left inside that wasn't bolted down. He kneeled up into the doorway and waited for his eyes to get used to the dimness of the interior. The sky had about an hour's worth of light left in it, but soon he knew the forest would be lit only by the evening's half-light. He flicked his flashlight on and used it to find the candle and matches in his sack. He lit the big candle and set it on the floor. With the flashlight, he decided to look around. Graffiti and jackknife carvings covered every surface. Most were either names with dates, like autographs, or names coupled in hearts. Broken brown bottle glass littered the front of the trailer, and the back smelled like stale old urine. Bobby shook his head slowly. Pennymore lived only in the stories and legends now. Robbie wondered if the stories really were true. He hoped so. He wished that he had been born back then, and had known Pennymore. He would have loved to drink coffee and listen to the old man's stories watching him carve or weave maybe he would have learned those crafts from him bobby had been told that the elder would carve and weave in late summer early spring and all winter those were the only times he would tell stories too never in the summer too much to do he would say there was ash to be cut and pounded sweet grass to be hung and tree roots to be hunted The only things left of Pennymar were the artifacts he'd made and the stories he'd told, and the stories told about him. Robbie liked the legend about the little ones, the Medulin. They were less than a foot high, and they lived in hollow trees. Some people in the tribe would never see any, since the little ones were sneaky and fast. With other folks, the Medulin were underfoot so much they'd get stepped on, accidentally of course. Their proximity to you depended on if they liked you or not. It was said that they could look right into your soul. Most people only caught glimpses of the little ones now and then in the corner of their eye or when they turned around really fast. Mostly, though, they would make their presence known by the tricks that they played on the unsuspecting. If they liked you, they would wait until you were asleep and then they'd tie knots in your hair or paint your face with clay or hide your clothes. If you did something really bad, it was said, the little ones would get you. No one knew what they'd do because, it was said, that person would end up running in a crazed fear through the woods, never to be seen again. Medulin had long black hair, dark beady little eyes, and they were fast. They moved like shadows. But a few hundred years ago, when people began to lose their place with the land, and the sicknesses of greed and booze infected the tribes, the little ones began to disappear. They could see into people's hearts. They walked away into the woods, and they kept looking back over their shoulders as if almost changing their minds. Robbie's mother told him that the Madulan went to Mount Katahdin. When they were walking away, they kept turning back with tears in their eyes. <clears throat> Robbie sat down by the candle and pulled his sack closer. He emptied it of its contents. There was a thermos container of coffee, some little baskets made out of wire bread ties, a couple of walking canes he'd carved out of ice cream sticks, and a half-pack of cigarettes. He knew that his mother wouldn't miss the cigarettes. She had them hidden all over the house. Robbie would come across them in the towels and in the bread box. When he asked her about them, she said she was trying to quit, so she was hiding them on herself. Why don't you just throw them away? he asked her. It would be a waste of money, dear, was all she would say in return. Robbie didn't smoke, but he knew that the little ones loved tobacco. An elder once told him that the Medoulin used tobacco only for their ceremonies and their prayers. It carried their prayers heavenward. Medoulin pr- played. Well, Medoulin, pl- <coughs> Medoulin prayed a lot, sonny. But not like folks these days. Everywhere you look, people are walking around with cigarettes hanging out of their mouths. Lots of prayers floating around. Smokers better watch out what they're thinking when they're smoking. The last things he took out of the knapsack were a couple of PBJ sandwiches. He was hungry, but he figured that would be a long night, so so he held off from eating. Excuse me a second. The coffee would come in handy with staying awake. He had told his mother that he was going to be camping out in the woods with a couple of friends, which wasn't really a lie. He hoped to be making some soon. Robbie believed two things very strongly. One was that the little ones were waiting for someone to welcome them back. The other was that if anyone had known the Medulin, it would have been Leon Pennymore. He figured that this was probably the best area around to try and meet them. The little trailer had been a gift to Pennymore when council members became concerned that he was spending the winters in a drafty old shack that used to be in the clearing. The shack was long gone now, probably used for firewood. Electricity was useless for Pennymore, who had oil lamps and a wood stove. What nobody else seemed to notice or even care about was the fact that the clearing hadn't grown over in the 12 years since Pennymore had passed on. Robbie took it as proof, that the Medulin were keeping their welcome mat clean, so to speak. Outside, the sky began to disappear into the starry void. He could make out where the trees were as the wall of black that stood below the sea of stars above. Robbie began to hum the song he'd made up, the song that was to invite the little ones to come inside. He waited and hummed. The air outside became black, the blackness pressed itself up against the edges of the windows in the doorway. Robbie shivered and pulled his sweatshirt on over his head. He lay down on his side and looked at the canes he carved. He took one in his hand and rubbed his eyes. His eyes were getting itchy. He decided to take a nap. He was sure that he would wake up if someone came to visit. Robbie began to dream in it he was sitting in the clearing but there was no trailer there wasn't even a shack instead there were huts huts were covered with wide sheets of birch bark one hut away from the clearing was made out of cedar bows robbie knew that that was the outhouse in his dream the sky was violet like it gets just after dawn in the center of the clearing was a fire pit medulla were, gl- were gathered around it They were standing quietly, and one of them was talking. Robbie understood what the speaker was saying. In his dream, he knew that it was a -A Pinawebskui language. To all my relations of the sky, of the land, and of the water, the speaker threw a handful of tobacco into the fire and took a couple of steps to his left around the fire. To Gluskabi, the creator for this new day, more tobacco went into the fire, and he moved again. To the ancestors for their guidance and wisdom, He offered more tobacco and moved a third time. For the new day, the promise it holds for hope and ingratitude. More tobacco was offered, and he moved back to where he had begun. The speaker kneeled down and pulled a coal out of the fire with his fingers. He put it into the little pipe he held. He puffed on the tobacco and spoke again. This day is the day of our goodbye. We will go to the mountain in these early hours before any the Pnwepskik awaken. There is time ahead of confusion and great change. There is no room for us in those times to come. There is no reason for us to be here then. But as everything moves in a cycle, our time will come around again. This is near the bottom of the cycle, like the first day of autumn. The winter of this cycle will be the coldest ever. But we will return in the spring, and the summer that follows will last forever." He puffed a couple of times and handed the pipe to the medulla on his left. The wind gusted across Bobby's skin, and he started. He realized he had been sleeping. There was no way of telling for how long. The wind had blown the candle out. He groped around for the flashlight. He found it and flicked it on. The beam was weak, and he couldn't find the candle. He looked around for his knapsack, but couldn't find it. He couldn't find his sandwiches, thermos, or even his gifts. Robbie began to feel confused. Beyond the doorway, the light above, the sky above, was lightening up. The stars faded into blue. His night was already over. The trees were black shapes in the pale blue light. He decided to go home. He was hungry, and the night was over. Robbie jumped down the doorway and stretched. He rubbed his eyes and scratched his head. His fingers got caught in his hair. Huh? He asked out loud. He patted his hair. It was a mess. There were knots in it like you wouldn't believe. The knots were tiny, and there were hundreds of them. As the sun began to rise in the pines, Robbie made his way through them on his way home. He was smiling his biggest smile ever. He had a story of his own to tell now. The story had never been told before.
1: Wow, that's a wonderful story. Well, thank,
0: thank you. I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's stories like that. I think help preserve uh, the beliefs and the traditions and and ceremony. Because, I mean, all you, through what you talk about the Medulins and the in birch bark and and
0: vision actually dream. It's a bit of a, uh, a fine line to walk where you don't sell out your native spirituality and beliefs uh, for a simple story, but yet you do want to include, uh, some of what makes you and your tribe, you know, uh, unique.
1: Yeah. But I think what it also does is it, is it preserves past. Hmm. Sort of like, um, I know we both know who you're referring to in this story only because we're from the same community. Yep. And, uh, the medicine man that uh, really sort of intrigued mm-hmm. people and intrigued them and, and, uh, and sort of scared them at the same time. Yeah. Uh,
0: I think you like that. I think, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Can you imagine being able to go out in the woods and everything you see out there is either food or medicine or poison and you know because it's been told to you.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Mm. But I mean, this is this is how I mean stories like this. Hmm. So um, your next story—that's <laughs> funny. Um, but to tell us, give us a little background on your next story okay. and how, how it came about. And
0: oh, uh, let's see. Um, the next story is also about stories. Um, I really, really enjoy a story that. You know, it can give you the willies, it can make you scared. I'm not much into movies or, or stories that have chainsaws and axes. You know, <laughs> I like the, uh, the heebie jeebies, you know, the creepy crawlers. Um, the rattling doorknob, creaky floorboards, that's that's it right there, All that right. kind of
1: stuff. Okay. And before you continue, I'm just going to interrupt oh, you yes for indeed. a minute. Uh, you're listening to WERU, Webinacci Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. We are talking today with the Vice Chief of the Penobscot Nation, Bill Thompson, who's also a writer and uh, he's telling us his stories. Go ahead, Bill.
0: Thank you, Donna. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Um, So what I've done is I've taken some of the stories of growing up that were scary to me and some of this. uh, the story here is actually a true story. Aren't they all? That's what makes them scary. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Uh, so I've incorporated uh, a couple of um, idioms in there. Um, there. There was a fellow who used to come visit us all the time, Henry no- Henry Knockwood, Isabel Tony's brother. And one time my mother, um, he came in the house and she says, henry knockwood long time no see why have a chair grab a grab a seat have a chair so he picked it up and hauled it out and threw it in the back of his pickup truck because he needed a new chair <laughs> he came back in sat down and they had coffee <laughs> so that's in there too but it's a it's it's a person another character um if you care we'll dive right on in okay okay i'm gonna tell this with a little bit of an accent because that's i used to live down on the coast by freeport in the summer times and i picked that up from my grandmother She was the kind of person who would say, Carl Tony was a little guy, and because because we liked it when he came down from Canada, me and my best friend Henry made sure he had a good time. He was afraid of the dark and ghosts. He was fun to scare, which occurred often, but even more frequent than that was all of us getting together scared like this one time after we had converted the chicken shack into our clubhouse. After the power went out one night in the middle of winter, the heater for the chicken shack failed, and all the poor hens died in their sleep. I went out in the morning with the grain and found them still clutched to their roosts, beaks under their wings. Mom said it would be bad to eat them after they died that way. She told me to clean them up. She didn't say when. The following spring, Henry and I asked my mom if we could turn the hen house into our private clubhouse. I guess she had been holding on to it only because it had been my dad's before they split up and before he passed away. Now that the hens were gone, she wasn't really interested in keeping it going, so she agreed to it. This meant that we would have to clean it. Well, something must have gotten into the hen house during the winter because there wasn't much left of the hens, and by something I mean a fox. Feathers lay scattered everywhere, plucked and strewn in a frenzy of ravenous poultry lust. One image will always remain crisp as the day the mind's eye photographed it. A single claw with a leg still attached, clutching the roost pole that stretched from the left to the right. The poor bird had held on to the last. Only the drumstick remained, a solemn monument to the memory of the little roaster. It took several hours of scraping, scrubbing, and a lot of soap to remove the carcasses, feathers, and droppings. Nothing would ever remove the sulphury scent of fowl, most evident in the heat of the following August, but it was ours. The memory of having a place to call my own sowed the first seed of the independence that would be needed years later it was like when you buy your first car and realize you can drive anywhere you want for as long as you like it was the taste of freedom a month before carl's mom drove here from the micmac reservation in quebec henry asked if i thought the coupe was ready for us to camp in for the first time We got down on our hands and knees and sniffed about the floor like dogs, just to be sure that the poop smell wasn't all that bad. Well, it was, but we talked each other into believing it was survivable. We agreed to camp out on the Friday night that was two days away. That gave us plenty of time to savor the anticipation. The imagination of the young cleans up the messy details of a plan that contains even the slightest hint of fun. By the time Friday rolled around, We had all kinds of goofy, idealized plans and expectations. One of my own ideas involved the use of a tape player and some ghost noises I recorded onto a tape. Stuff like chains clanking and the obligatory moans and wails. I was going to scare the hell out of Henry that night. I wondered if using ghostly chicken noises would be good. I decided against it. Now he had the idea to wire the place with an extension cord so we could have a night light or perhaps a little television set, and maybe a toaster for breakfast. Of course, mom would never allow us to take food into that poop house, but we had our own standards of hygiene. Wouldn't it be cool to cook our own breakfast in the morning? We did not even consider the ethical ramifications of cooking eggs in a building where so many chicken mothers had lost their lives. We were young. We stood back to survey our work. It was actually pretty good looking. We stopped short of putting up curtains and flower boxes, but with the tables and chairs, well, which were a few fat chunks of firewood, stood up on end around this huge wooden spool that once had power lines wound up on it. Along with the shelves, the radio, no TV, candles, and lamp, it looked like the sort of place a fugitive could call home. We lit the candles before it got dark because we couldn't wait. Henry wanted to tell ghost stories, but I told him to hold off until it got dark. The darkness would add to the fear I was hoping to evoke from Henry with the tape recorder. This would be the best way to test the plan before using it on Carl. That's what I planned on telling Henry afterward anyway. It ended up being a rather haunting summer that year. When it finally got dark, we had eaten up all our supplies. Henry wanted me to sneak into the house and snatch the chocolate-covered graham crackers, and I thought, hey, this would be a good time to try out the tape recorder. God bless it, the thing ran on those big D batteries. I would be able to pull the plug on the lamp he had going at that moment after the noises kicked in. The extension cord was plugged into an outdoor outlet on the side of my house. I hoped that he wouldn't have a heart attack, I mused, as I waited for the tape to get past the blank part. Henry didn't even wait for me to mess around with the lights. He flew the coop at the first ghostly moan. I couldn't stop laughing for what seemed like an hour. All my sides ached and my cheeks hurt and my nose was stuffed up from all the tears. It was horrible. But Henry took it well, especially when I told him it would be Carl's turn when he came down from Canada. It was time for the first ghost story ever told in our little clubhouse. It was go- I was going to tell Henry about the neighbor's ghost problems. <clears throat> Sorry. This is what I said. You know how my dad got into this chicken stuff, don't you? It was all because of Louis Driscoll, who used to live in that there house next door with his woman, Loretta Pennymore. Louie, that old rascal, he got lazy in his old age and decided that maybe it would be less work to raise chickens than it was stealing them, as he was currently doing. He got a hold of some eggs from the shop and save and kept them by the cooking stove in the kitchen for about three weeks until they started to reek pretty bad. He kept them another week just to be sure they wouldn't hatch and then threw them out when Loretta began packing to move back to her mom's. He asked around and found out, you know, that you have to make sure that a rooster has gotten after the hens before they lay their eggs, and you can't touch the shells or you'll smother the chicken inside, all that stuff. Before you know it, you had a handful of those little yellow puffballs all cheeping and hopping and poopin' everywhere. Well, it was nigh on about September, chilly at night and warm in the day, when Louie decides this will be his last batch for the year. He wants to save a couple for their eggs and fill up his freezer with the rest of them. By gum, no sooner did he say all this too redder than weird things began to happen around the place. Things came to be missing one moment and then turning up in another place later. Footfalls from upstairs, and the room no one ever went into because it's haunted. Did you know they walled up both doorways into that room? I swear to God they put drywall up, taped, mudded, and painted it over. I seen it. Anyway, that's when the whistler come. My sister Kimma was babysitting for Louie and Loretta one night when she heard somebody walk across the floor over the kitchen. The room above is the one that's all boarded up. If that wasn't enough, it sounds like someone's got a rocking chair going. Yup, rocking away just a few feet over her head. Rock, squeak, rock, squeak. Next thing you know, the one doing the rocking begins to whistle. Not in a strong manner, mind you, but kind of gaspy, a bit out of breath, faint and sort of jittery, like it was the breath from a grave. Well, let me tell you, that was enough for old Kimmer. She grabbed the twins and bolted from that house right then and there, not even bothering to turn out the lights. She ain't never been back inside to this day, I kid you not. So Louis and Loretta get back from the bars or the movies or the strip clubs or what have you, and all the lights are on. No one's there. I figure the whistler must have run out of breath or else got offended by Kimmer's reaction to his performance. Cause the place was quiet. Dead as a coffin nail. They call next door to our house and after everything's all set they got their kids a bed and lights out and all that good stuff. They call it a night. Loretta wakes up about two in the morning, certain that someone's down there frigging around with the chickens. Louie gets right up because, you know, he's been sleeping light now that the chickens have approached meal size. Before, they were only bite-sized. He grabs his bathrobe and his baseball bat and heads down the stairs three at a time. Loretta listens as he makes a racket outside, hollering at, You damn punks, waking all the neighborhood dogs Come to find out it was some old fox looping around, but it didn't get into the hen house. Loretta lies there listening to Louis climb up the steps. He comes in, hangs his robe on the back of the ba- bedroom door, and slips into bed. Loretta asks him who it was, but he doesn't say anything. He just lays there. Next thing you know, Loretta hears Louis coming up the stairs. He opens the bedroom door, hangs his bathrobe on the b- hook on the back, and climbs into bed. He says, oh, Just a damn fox. Loretta screams and jumps up, hits a light switch, and that was her last night in that house, too. Seems the ghost they roomed with was fond of chickens. Can't say why. When I finished this story, Henry remarked that he thought it was going to rain, and maybe the roof would leak so we should spend the night in the house. Having given myself the willies, but not one to admit it, I was thankful for that easy way out. I admired his idea. It was just over three weeks later when Gloria Bell Tony drove up the driveway. My mom was really happy to see her. She welcomed Gloria Bell in saying, Come on in, grab a chair, have a seat. And do you know that's just what Gloria Bell did. She grabbed a chair and hauled it off outside her of pickup truck and she chucked the chair in the back. Then she came in and thanked my mom because she needed a good chair. Carl took one look at the new clubhouse and smiled his biggest smile. You guys are lucky, he had that Canadian accent. You guys sleep in there, eh? Yep, we did. After a while, we were able to sleep in it the whole night through, I said, smiling and pushing my chest out. Henry wanted Carl to sleep over that very night, but his mother told him no, that they needed to get situated at the old singer place before anything else. Well, I asked my mom if I could help them, and Mom said yes, and she would cook supper for all of us. Gloribel and Carl and Henry, too, of course. Well, that sealed it. Gloribel said if we helped, then Carl could sleep over. It was going to be a lot of work, all because we were too impatient to wait for the opportunity to scare the hell out of Carl. Well, it was... Oops, going the wrong way here. Wow. Oh, I see. Sorry about that. Okay. Gloribel was moving here for a while, it turned out. She told Mom and Carl, told us, that she was hitching up with old Pete Singer. Seems she was getting tired of the long-distance romance. She wanted it shorter distance, and besides, the winters in Maine were much nicer than in Quebec. When Carl told us he was going to be going to school here with us, he was wriggling around like a springer spaniel does, sort of wagging their whole body. We whooped it up and patted each other on the backs and such. But boy, was that house in need of a cleaning. Old Pete didn't have much use for a broom, and he figured that everything in his hand came in touch with might come in useful some day, so he threw nothing away. Lucky for us, Glorabel only wanted us to help her clear out one room so she could unload her truck in case it rained. She said that since it took him his whole life to fill that house up like that, it was probably going to take more than one day to straighten it out. By supper time we were three dusty sore and sleepy boys. It didn't seem like a good night to do any scaring. So Henry and I agreed to put it off until the next night. But Carl Carl really wanted to try out the clubhouse. So we got our supplies together and laid out the bedrolls. We were just lying there listening to the Dr. Demento show on the radio, watching the candlelight flicker on the ceiling, when a pale white face peeked in the screen and yelled, "Boo!" Sorry about that. I almost wet my pants, but I'm pretty sure that Henry did because he went outside and finished the job without saying a word. Liz McManus had herself a good laugh at our expense. When she regained her breath, she mentioned that she saw our light flickering and was glad because she needed someone to walk the rest of the way up the road to our trailer. We invited her into the clubhouse and she came in at once putting her hand over her nose. One of you guys need to see a doctor and quick. The smell of poultry is like the smell of Easter lilies, sharp and pungent at first, but you get used to it after a while. After some coaxing, she sat down with her back to the wall and told us why a teenager like her needed the help of some 11-year-old boys. I got spooked last night. She was out drinking with some of the other big kids down at the riverbank, and when she got home last night, it turned bad. She was part Polish and part Irish. The Irish part was responsible for the freckles, her pale face and the angry red hair. She was going to tell us what happened. This is what Liz said. You know how my gram takes care of me after my mom went off the deep end? Well, she lets me do anything I want, stay out all hours and I couldn't even drop out of school if I felt like it. So I'm really kind of on my own. At least I thought so till last night. Well, I was down at the dike with the dike rats, and we had a bottle. Somebody pulled out a jay, and we sparked that up. Anyways, it was getting real late when I set out for home, and that's when I heard it. There was something following along in the woods off to my left, but it was so quiet I could almost blame it on my imagination. And when I stopped to make sure, it stopped too. I didn't know whether to keep walking and hope it didn't charge me, or to just take off, which would then cause it to chase after me, and I didn't want that. So I reached down by the edge of the tar and I felt around for some good-sized throwing rocks. I was as far away from the other side of the road as I could get, and then I hear it on the near side, I mean, it had crossed the road or something. I didn't want to think that now there were two of them, whatever they were. I didn't want to think that I was being surrounded by a pack of wolves or anything. I just wanted to be home, in bed, under the covers. To get there, I had to go through that stretch of road where there weren't any streetlights. And that was where I knew I would have to run. So I get closer, and the last streetlight behind me gets further away, and I can see on the ground where the the light ends. I'm sure you boys know what I'm talking about. The light from the streetlight is pale blue, And when your shadow is stretching out in front of you on the ground, you can see where your shadow joins the rest of the darkness. It's a line you have to cross. You have to enter the darkness, and then you gotta run. Well, run I did, and I was chucking those rocks all about me, sprinting for all I was worth, and I didn't know if it was the wind or what. But leaves started to blowing out of the woods right into my face. And I'm about to pass out from fright when, just like that, I'm through the dark part. Never was I so happy to be under a streetlight. I could have kissed it. Only thing is, I can hear the leaves still blowing back in the dark part, like it's waiting for me. Henry spoke up. You, you, you need, you need us to help you get past that dark part, huh? Liz nodded, then went on. But it wouldn't be fair to you boys if you didn't hear what else happened. I think you should know. Well, I get home, crawl into bed, and turn out the light, and that's when I saw him. Now just hold on, I'll tell you. It was this really old guy. He's wearing some kind of a headdress, like with buffalo horns or or something on it, like those western Indians used to go about in He's got his rattle going in one hand, his eagle feather in the other, and he's kind of glowing, like with a green aura. He's bending over me in my bed, and he looks pissed off. I shrink under the covers, peek out, and he's still there. So I reach out and yank on the lamp chain, and he's gone. I don't waste no time. I run down the hall, throwing lights on, and leaving him that way, until I get to my Gram's room at the other end of the trailer, and I hop in bed with her. Now, Gram can't sleep with the light on, But she doesn't even ask why I'm all curled up against her back. She just turns the light off and starts her little snoring, she does. And the old medicine guy is back. But he's not leaning over me anymore. Nope, he's sitting at the foot of the bed and chanting. And he's got all these native artifacts hanging on the wall behind him. There's drums, a couple of turtle shell rattles, some war clubs, and these stone tools with red stuff all over them. That kind of stuff. He watched me all night. I know, because I watched him. Toward daybreak, he just fades into the light. Well, that's all it took. I've been at the church all day, and I've been praying. And now it's dark. I don't know how I could have let this happen to myself. Henry spoke up again. You, you, you need us to to walk you through that dark part on the way to the, to the end of the road, huh? Liz nodded. Her trailer was the last home on the road, just past old Grampy Dan's place. "'Everyone called him Grampy Dan "'because he made you feel welcome when you visited him. "'He always had cookies and pie and candy.' "'Well, there it was, "'some of the scariest stuff any of us had ever heard, "'which had happened to the teller of the tale "'and not some cousin of a friend of a friend. "'And it sounded true, "'and it had happened just last night. "'Now we were being pulled into it feet first. "'On the other hand, Boy, didn't we love an adventure, especially one that was sure to be scary. That's why we didn't ask my mom to drive her home or call her grandma on the phone. We were going to be the big heroes for Liz and to each other. The only prerequisite was that we needed a bunch of flashlights and a couple of sticks. Carl was good with a slingshot because that's how the mechanics got their food. Of course, we had to tell my mom what we were up to since it was after dark and all, but she didn't need to hear all the gory details. Besides, it was always more fun when you could act like you were doing something you weren't allowed to. She said yes, and we were off. Well, the first thing that happens is you act all brave. and You're laughing, talking loud, and swinging your stick at the branches and leaves by the road. You're yelling at ghosts and wolves and begging them to just try it, mister. Just try to come out here and see what you can do. Why... You may even kick out the next streetlight, even though streetlights are your friend. But, in a little bit, you become aware of the depth of the forest on both sides, and the little noises that could be moles and mice, or perhaps little people. But maybe it's something that's been dead a while, and it's been disturbed by your laughing and bravado. Maybe you've woken something up. Then you remember that Liz will be inside her trailer, And you have to walk back with just your two buddies. When there's three, only one can be in the middle. So you quiet it down a little bit, and oddly, that doesn't seem to help anything. The silence grows a little, the darkness behind the street lamp lit leaves gets darker, and the noises become rustles. And then it happens. Something that makes all four of you stop in your tracks and perk your ears up. Something heavy falls in the woods, like a big log, or is it a giant footstep? We heard it. It broke branches all the way down, landed with a really heavy thump. Henry yelled out, "'Are you okay?' Which was a relief, because then we could laugh. There was no audible answer, for which we were thankful. However, the mood had changed. Suddenly, each one of us boys wanted to be as close to Liz as we could get, only because she was an older kid than the rest of us, like a substitute adult. And, wouldn't you know it, we were at the last streetlight before the dark stretch. Carl wanted to go back to Canada. Henry triple-checked to make sure his flashlight would flick on and off. I just gripped the club I had and gritted my teeth. It was Liz who started off into the dark first, clutching a flashlight in one hand, her stick in the other. I followed then Henry and Carl held up the rear, snatching up shot stones for his sling. The road is a bit curvy, and it bends to the right, so you can't see the streetlight up yonder until you've gone well beyond the halfway point. It was a part where you couldn't see the streetlight on either end. That was important because it meant that you had to commit to doing this and just have faith that the streetlight on the other end would still be there when you emerged. Mm, Excuse me. So there we were, and it wasn't getting any lighter out. I had the urge to turn tail and just barrel ass for home, and I'm sure the others would have followed. Besides, Liz was well on her way to her own home already, why did she need us to go the rest of the way with her? Of course, there was no way I would abandon her, because I'd never be able to live it down. And that sucked. So we continued along, flashlight spots waltzing about on the ground before us, scattering and regrouping into the trees on the left to the right at every noise that the forest around us made. Even without having witnessed firsthand the ghostly events of her previous night, This part of the darkened street was frightening enough that I had no idea how she traversed it each and every night without a shotgun or at least a pistol. I was about to mention this to her when a bit of a breeze began to blow at the end of the street from which we'd just come. Dried leaves skidded along the tar behind us, picking up speed and number. An amazing thing happened. The chorus of leaves began to undulate in a wave of noise, becoming the clopping of a team of horses speeding down upon us. But nothing was there. Even so, we dashed into the woods on either side as the hurricane of leaves stormed past. Once past us, the leaves and the wind parted ways in a flurry of dissipation. The silence returned like a sigh of relief. Carl was crying. Henry clenched his hands over and over on his stick, and Liz shined her light all around. I went over to where the leaves flew apart and drew a line in the dirt on the side of the road. "'What you doing that for?' said Carl, drying his eyes. He wasn't really crying. It was more like his eyes were watery from the willies. At least he didn't run away like a big baby, which is what I had wanted to do. I told him, if we survive this night, I want to come back in the daylight and check out this area. I tossed the stick in the middle of the road. For what? Carl cocked his head sideways. For trick wires, footprints, tracks. I paused, getting into vampire character, complete with accent. Or even bones, my little blood bag. We regained our composure somewhat and started on again, without saying much, but thinking a lot. The mood of our crew was as tense as a tightly bound sack of crystal goblets and bone china. Any sudden loud noise would fracture us into shards and sharp splinters. The streetlight ahead winked into view through the leaves and branches on the side of the road as the curve straightened out. Our pace quickened, and we kept checking behind us, looking into the darkness that followed. It was going to be an ordeal to face it again without the big kid Liz. Maybe we could spend the night at Liz's. Maybe one of our mothers would rescue us probably not most likely we would end up going back the same way we had gotten up here because it was sure to be told to us that we had gotten ourselves into this fix in the first place so we had just better get ourselves out of it liz was kind she told us that once we got on the other side of the dark stretch she would be all right we didn't have to walk her all the rest of the way to her trailer. This was intended to be good news, but for some reason it came out like a death knell. I guess we'd been hoping for a brief respite within the comforts of a brightly lit mobile home. Instead, we were left at the steep bank of a black river, facing the impending swim back across. We told her things like "good night" and good luck with that old ghost man, but nobody asked her if she would walk us back. So after watch... (laughs) "'so after watching her jog farther up the road "'and disappear around another bend, "'we turned back to the black hole. "'Anybody have any last words?' I asked, "'shining my light into the abyss. "'Nobody answered me. "'So off we went. "'For some reason, the woods appeared to be even darker, "'quieter, and denser than before. "'The depths of blackness into which we sank "'began to take on weight and texture. "'It was a wool blanket.' Then the leaves and the wind started up again, this time from the direction of Liz's trailer. Henry whimpered, no fair, we ain't even halfway yet. We ran. It was the panicked, frenzied run of the doomed. With our hearts pounding in our throats and our lungs aching from open mouth gasping, we pumped our legs as hard as we could, feet pounding against the tar until they throbbed. Carl was the first one to fall and land on his knees, It was the stick I had left in the middle of the road. I felt responsible, but I didn't tell him so. I just yanked him up by the arm and helped him hobble along. The flurry of leaves came upon us, but no one had their eyes open. The sting of a hundred pinpricks and razor slices overwhelmed my mind from the dried old oak leaves that whirled about us. Then they were gone, and I shined my light on my arms. No blood, at least on me. Carl's knees bled from the road rash. We cast our flashlight beams around, but we couldn't see Henry. It took Henry! Carl whispered hoarsely. We heard a crunch of leaves, then a white face leered around from behind the tree we had our beams on, and we screamed. I almost wet myself again. It was Henry. He said, That was the scariest thing that ever happened to me. Carl and I concurred. We walked again at a slow pace, twitching around at every sound a mole or mouse would make listening, straining to hear the slightest evidence of a ghost or demon in the woods on either side. The impulse to run again was offset by a new, strange sort of feeling. It was close to the paralysis of the mobilizing fear that a deer gets when caught in the headlights. It was just a little to the south of the numbing, please don't bite me, fear that one gets when cornered by a barking, snapping dog. It was more akin to the jittery If I run, you'll chase me and catch me and eat me, so I'll just back slowly out of the cave, sort of fear that one would have upon startling a big, maine black bear. It seemed like the whole forest was holding its breath, and then we heard it. It was a thin, long note, sort of hollow, from out of the murky depths of the trees on our left. It was a plaintive whistling in the dark. It dissipated. Then it came back, not quite starting over again, but more like fading back into our collective consciousness. It was the whistler from the second floor next door. He was in the woods now, taking a break from the old rocking chair. The street light up ahead winked into view, and this time, when we ran, we didn't panic. We merely ran with all our might, not any strength borrowed from adrenaline and fear, but from the knowledge that we had just made it. The train whistle blew twice more and then the woods were quiet once again.
1: That's another great story.
0: Thank you. Appreciate that.
1: Yeah. It sort of uh, reminds me of uh, well, actually growing up on the island. Right on. <laughs> you know, what a unique experience. <laughs> so, so, exactly. So how how many years ago was that?
0: Thirty years ago, good Lord, thirty years ago. Thirty years ago. Yeah, yeah. Give me my walker and that pot of tea over there. So you I. You don't
1: d- know who you're talking to, here, do you? <laughs> you don't
0: have a walker. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet grass tea. would mm, wouldn't that be nice? Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. so that's uh, growing up on Indian Island. Um, there's a, a lot of truth to that story about how it was back then and and the characters. I
1: think it's funny. Um, when I was growing up, it was like thirty years before your 30 years.
0: <laughs> come
1: on serious know, ah. um the the, uh, the streetlight thing yeah I remember that. I remember uh, how the 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 lights ended at a particular place in the road and yeah. then, and then it got scary when you walked past there and then the graveyards yeah, getting
0: yep. to those and whistling as you go by in the night yeah yeah,
1: yeah. and the uh, remember the little house in the graveyard the yeah, what was that yeah up with that? But they would keep the the bodies. Yep. That was a scary place. Yeah, mausoleum.
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah, I know we used to play around there too, and dare, dare each other to to go up through there at night and just really scary. You're waiting for that hand to reach around your ankle, <laughs> <laughs> even though these are all loved ones, you know. Yeah.
1: And then and then when you where you describe walking and you hear something in the woods yeah. walking with you and uh, and we always were told that. That's the Indian devil,
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> that part actually comes from my wife, oh really? yeah, she was walking along and she heard something in the woods that would stop whenever she stopped. Mm-hmm. Now that's kind of freaky, but then she started to run, and luckily she could run fast.:
1: yeah, and I guess the uh the Indian devil legend is mm. a cat it's uh changing um it's not a bobcat, it's mm. um. Uh, Links, I think it's the lynx. Me mm-hmm. links. But uh, yeah, it's a so. Uh, and then, uh, mm-hmm. then then another another piece that uh, Oh, oh the, the the scream or something.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it could, was, a, uh, it could be a it could be a small animal like a skunk or something, but it sounds like a baby crying.
1: Well, I re- I remember um, at a hunting camp one time we heard this screaming in the distance, and mm-hmm. it was actually. Uh, because uh, I, I, you know, I would say, someone's being hurt. Let's go help yeah. that person and whatever. Yeah. And they said, no, 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 no. That's not a person. That's an animal. Yeah. Ugh. So
0: uh, that doesn't make it any better.
1: No, it doesn't. <laughs> well, OK. Well, well, thank you for coming and, and for sharing your stories. We had a great time listening. Great. And thank uh, you. yeah. So thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring. And you've been listening to Web and Acu Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles, from his new CD, Dreamwalk. I want to thank my, my special guest, Bill Thompson, for agreeing to be on the show today. Please join us next month for another Wabanaki Windows.